0: Hello everyone, this is Sean Parker with Fill in the Blank, and we have back with us Greg Lawson. Greg is going to talk with us today about international politics, primarily what's going on over in Eastern Europe. We're going to touch a little bit, hopefully, on Asia as well. Greg is someone that has a tremendous amount of experience in geopolitics. He understands regional issues. He understands how the economics overlay. He is a fellow with the Buckeye Institute, and the podcast that we did was one of the most commented-on podcasts. We did it right before, I think it was three days before, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was almost prophetic in terms of the things that we discussed and talked about. It unfolded like the playbook in many respects of what we thought could happen. And, uh, you know, looking back over our shoulder, Everyone is curious and wondering what does this mean to the bigger sphere of the world? What does this mean to our local world? Is this what's causing inflation? Is this what's causing food shortages, scarcity, etc.? So we're going to touch on a whole lot of things. You're going to be a whole lot smarter for listening to Greg Lawson, and I'm going to pull as much out of his brain for you that I possibly can. So Greg Lawson, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues. And it is interesting. Uh, I remember that we did it right before, literally, I think it was three days before uh, they went in, and it's a real tragedy. Uh, everything that's happening now is a tragedy. It's the biggest war in Europe uh, since World War II, 1945. And when you see the videos from Ukraine, you're seeing the kind of things that we, a lot of people, thought were consigned to the dustbin of history, and that that could never happen again. But lo and behold, it does happen, uh, because human nature doesn't really change. And I think that's one of the great lessons of what we're seeing here in in Europe. And, you know, even in the last two days now, and and we're seeing uh, things heat up in Asia. So it's kind of feeling, unfortunately, a little bit like it might have felt in the late 1930s and early 1940s, because you've got a very hot situation in Europe, and now you have a very hot situation developing in Asia, and you have sort of an axis of powers, so to speak, that are working not in direct alignment. There's, there's, there's definitely some differences, so you you, don't, you want to be careful not to overstate it, but the Sino-Russian axis uh, is a real thing, and it's, and it's becoming a challenge. And So now you have to look at Ukraine and Taiwan, and, and, and both of these are actually potentially very much linked. Greg, is, uh, so, so, uh,
0: there's about 10 things I want to ask you on just in that little statement that you made there. Do you think really that we are looking at the 30s and 40s, or are we really looking at a mirror that goes back to the 1920s or the 1890s in terms of both of those countries? You know, it, when, when you look at, at Russian expansion, Russian interest, when you look at China during uh, imperialism, and I don't want to bore our people because we can go deep, we can go hard. But is, is, are we not looking a little bit further back in time to the predictors that were present historically in those time frames?
1: Well, I think this is what I mean when I say human nature doesn't change and history has long threads. I think Americans, you know, we, we very much appreciate our history. But I think a lot of times it's it's hard to know a lot of the history of other nations. Sometimes it's hard enough to know our own. But when you look at Russian imperialism, when you look at China... That none of these things are entirely new, and, and they do have antecedents in those time periods because Russia has long been expansionist. Now, as I think I mentioned in the last time I was on, part of the reason that they have such an expansionist mindset is also a sense of profound insecurity, which is partly driven by geography, especially on the Western side, because there's a lot of non-defensible borders that Russia has, and Russia has been invaded numerous times. And so there is a sense of insecurity that influences some of the Russian mindset, and you could even argue probably makes them more paranoid. I think that's difficult for Americans to wrap their mind around because, for the most part, we haven't been invaded. But Russia has been multiple times, in fact, almost once a century, going back to the 1600s or even down to the 1500s. And if you want to go really far back, you can talk about the Mongols and Genghis Khan and the successors there actually occupied what is present-day Russia. So there's a long-standing thing there, and I think Ukraine and the history of Ukraine, which is very much linked to the history of Russia, and there's a a whole bunch of different perceptions, and and it's a very complicated thing where different people with different backgrounds are going to assert that their vision of the truth and their vision of history is accurate. But the bottom line is they're, they're linked. They're linked together very closely, whether they want to be or not, and you can dispute individual points, about the Ukrainian perspective or the Russian perspective, but that history influences this. And a history of fear, uh, a history of expansionism, a history of being the top dog in some neo-imperialist sort of uh, mindset. Uh, So I think that's all very much present in Russia. And in China, I think we see some similar things. And and in some ways, there's a chip. uh, Both Russia and China have chips on their shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that people really need to understand. Russia feels humiliated in the post-Cold War era they feel like the United States in particular didn't give them the sort of respect that they were due as a great power. Kind of goes back to how the Cold War even ended. There's a a perception by a lot of Russians that the the Cold War ended relatively bloodlessly, which was pretty surprising for anybody who grew up uh, during the Cold War. The fact that it ended the way that it did without some kind of mass conflagration was surprising.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, Perestroika and Glasnost were things that we couldn't understand because we were still figuring out how to crawl under our school desk in case of a nuclear attack. And one day, literally, we woke up and they said the wall's coming down.
1: Yeah. And Gorbachev is very much a central figure. People, you know, Reagan was obviously a central figure, and the Pope at the time, Pope John Paul was central figures. And jo- I-
0: George Bush 41. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, was, was a player. and He was actually against Reagan having the conversations yes. because he could not trust Gorbachev. He didn't think he was a trustable person. And Reagan's people, it's, I, I think this is one of the great sub-stories, and Reagan's people said, look at the way he dresses. This is the first Russian at that level that has ever worn a suit designed in France. He is not a Russian. He is a Westerner that wants to communicate with the Western. Imagine that. It's as simple as the people involved sometimes.
1: It was. And, and what's fascinating about this is because of the way that it ended, there is a sense by a lot of Russians that, that they were a partner in the end of the Cold War. This wasn't just a Western victory. This wasn't just America winning. This was a partnership to end what could have been a very dangerous situation. And so the fact that there is a perception that in those post-Cold War years, there wasn't a fair shake from multiple post-Cold War presidents is something that really kind of bothers a lot of people in Russia. And this isn't just a Putin thing, I think this is a broad-based thing. And you gotta also understand, There's a lot of intelligence officials. I mean, Putin rose up through the intelligence services. A lot of the people who are very powerful now in Russia aren't just the business people, but they're the former intelligence folks who are, some of them might actually be, and there's there's reason to believe that some of these folks are more paranoid than Putin is. And there's even discussions that a lot of them, in the early days of the Putin years, after Yeltsin was gone, there was a lot of outreach by Putin to the West. And there's a sense that some of the folks thought Putin was, frankly, being maybe a bit naive and trusting the Americans. So you might have actually have an argument that there Putin is a relative moderate by Russian standards. I, not now, probably, but at, at one point in time, uh, he would have been. Now, I think he's been turned, and I don't think that's the case anymore. But that gets to the point of this is the debate about did we lose Russia? Uh, some folks, like George Kennan, who we talked about before, who was— the intellectual godfather, the containment doctrine during the Cold War, essentially was saying, don't expand NATO. If you do, it's going to create a, an inherently revanchist, uh, nationalistic Russia. You know, he, he said that. He has a lot of respect as probably being one of the greatest Amer- uh, Russia hands that America has ever produced in understanding the Russian mindset. Uh, and he was writing about this when Clinton was doing the initial NATO expansion. And so you know, there again, we're kind of going a little deep there, but I think it's important to understand that, that, that Ukraine is the culmination of a, just a vast history of things that have happened in the past 30 years. It wasn't just one thing, and I think that it is a—a a lot of folks want to have like a single cause. Uh, a lot of people want to say that Putin is Hitler 2.0, that Russia neo-imperialism is, is the only reason why, or that NATO expansion is the only reason why. It seems to me that the most obvious explanation is that it's a little bit of all of it and that it's a cauldron of things uh, where all of these aspects have merged together and are mutually reinforcing. Would Russia go into Ukraine if they didn't believe that they needed a sphere of influence and if they weren't having a imperialist mindset that is probably more 19th century than what we consider 21st century? Probably not. Would they have gone in if they weren't worried that we were going to start putting American weapons and Western military equipment into Ukraine and tear away from their sphere of influence in a country that they think is inextricably linked to their own history? Well, probably not either. So you have a situation where I think this war is a tragedy, a true tragedy for everybody. It's a tragedy for us. It's a tragedy, most importantly, of course, for the Ukrainians. And it's a tragedy for the Russians. Because I don't think this, there is a certain degree of inevitability as events transpired. But there was always opportunities, I think, where this was not, there could have been other roads taken. There were other choices that could have been taken. This isn't just me saying it. Again, we talk about Kennan saying it. Kissinger has talked a lot about this. Even the CIA director, William Burns, uh, he was an official, has been a long time Washington hand. And he had, been uh, in the George W. Bush years, was writing memos, I believe he was the ambassador at the time to, the, to uh, Russia, that there wasn't a single Russian that he ever interacted with that was, that was supportive of NATO expansion. There was a lot of concern and fear. And so there were a lot of very well-known expert folks who were saying, boy, this might not make a lot of sense, but there was a lot of sort of inertia and domestic politics in the United States and, in West, and Europeans and, and every nation had their own reasons for doing it. But it's a tragedy because I think there were alternatives. And the great broader perspective is what's now happening because of the response of the West to the Russian aggression against Ukraine has now, at least for the foreseeable future, ensconced this axis that I mentioned at the beginning, which is the Sino-Russian axis. You had a situation where Nixon and Kissinger broke China away from the Soviet Union in the 70s, and that was a very big piece of what ultimately was a long-term successful Cold War strategy, now we've actually done the reverse. We are actually simultaneously confronting Russia and China, and we have pushed them into each other's arms. And while China has not done as much as some people might have feared they would uh, at the initial outbreak of the war, they certainly have politically supported Russia. They have Their propaganda domestically in China completely supports the Russian line that this is the West's fault, And uh, they are finding ways to obviously buy uh, discounted, though it might be, but they're buying oil and gas and things like that from Russia and helping them in in certain critical ways. So this is a problem. And Russia may end up being quite helpful to them if, in fact, the tensions in Taiwan continue to boil over. So... Uh, I've written for years that we needed to find a way to do a reverse Nixon, to work with the Russians, because China is the greatest challenge the United States has probably ever faced from a geopolitical and economic standpoint. And I think that we have missed multiple opportunities to do that. And I think now we run the risk of uh, burning the candle at both ends of the Eurasian landmass. And that is a not a good place for us to be. Uh, especially when we have all of our domestic political problems and economic problems.
0: There's some really weird things that have happened in the middle of all this. You know, I'm going to list a few of them with the idea that I'm going to point them into the economic side of this, because I believe that economics and politics ultimately have to work together and that they force each other down the same road. And one of the things that people said, because I didn't expect Russia to really go into Ukraine in a full military multi-pronged attack, and they did. I, I, I was suspicious, as I think every person in the West was, that they would, th- would these people really do this? And I've heard only one plausible thing that made sense to me, and it was the uh, geo-economist Zaihan that said that the Russian demographic of males in the military is going to go down by 40% over the next six to eight years, meaning they don't have kids aged males aged 12 to 20 that can drive tanks in the next cycle of the generational curve. Therefore, this was the only time that they could actually do this. They were looking at it and they said, we have to do it now or it's now or never. Then you look at, okay, here comes China, right? You know, can Russia and China enter into an economic accord energy-wise? What does China need from the Soviets, the ex-Soviet states or Russia? They need energy. You know, we've been giving them their energy. We've kept the sea lanes open. So they have a need for predictable energy patterns. Russia has to get rid of lots of energy. They have shut down pipelines. Their pipelines run through the permafrost. The permafrost, if you don't keep them flowing, will destroy everything. When Halliburton left, you know that the critical mass to keep the infrastructure operating is no longer there. So all of Europe is facing an energy crisis of monumental proportions. And then we get to the question that really is kind of the confounding one. Russia's in there with a total destruction program. They are taking the cities down with the possible idea, and I talked to some Marine Corps people, who were you know, former Marine Corps people, and they said that the Russians are, are leveling the cities with the intention that they probably will never be rebuilt, and the Russians don't want them rebuilt. They would rather have the Ukraine as a agricultural province of Russia. What do you think about that? Does that make sense that that, that they would Use that level of obliteration, but it, it does on some levels. What do you think?
1: The short answer is sure. Uh, I think that's possible. I think the Russian way of war is is interesting. I I was actually I was surprised too in the way they went in, as you mentioned, that they did a full scale thing. I think Putin thought that it would be a quick decapitation strike of the leadership. They tried to secure that airport outside Kiev, and and it, you know that they didn't do it, and then they had all kinds of problems. They ultimately had to recalibrate. And I don't think that that was some great feint <laughs> or anything like that. I think they, they thought that it was going to be easy, and I think they under, uh, underestimated the Ukrainian will, the Ukrainian talent, and uh, probably, frankly, underestimated the response of the West. I mean, we've got people training people. We've got people sharing intelligence. I mean, we've been bragging about our intelligence, yeah. <laughs> helping the Ukrainians to target Russian generals. Uh, So I think they were surprised uh, by that. And so they've now uh, recalibrated and gone to a more traditional Russian way of doing things. They kind of tried to fight a more informatized, complicated, quick strike kind of approach, which is the kind of stuff that sometimes the United States has has proven to be very excellent at doing. And they did not uh, excel at that. And so now they're going to stand off, long-range, blow crap up, bleed the Russian military. I think they want to bleed, I'm sorry, bleed the Ukrainian military. And it's easier to do that when you can just bomb the crap out of cities and uh, move in after you've obliterated the city. And I think that that is kind of, I mean, that's what they did in Grozny, uh, in, when they had, which is in Chechnya, when they had uh, separatist issues in Chechnya. They obliterated the city and then uh, re- had it rebuilt under somebody that the Kremlin is uh, tight with. Frankly, they've done stuff like that when they were involved in some of their efforts in Syria, and when they were backing uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, they bombed the heck out of Aleppo and things like that. That is the Russian way of doing things: obliterate, 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 move in, and do that. Now they also are going through these filtration systems with the Ukrainians, and they're taking kids, and they're. It appears that they're you know trying to essentially commit what really is ethnic cleansing in the areas that they control. I think Russia does not believe Ukraine should now be a sovereign nation. Whether they ever did or not, obviously there's a lot of folks who think that this was always inevitable, that they were going to essentially try to obliterate the Ukrainian identity, or whether this is now a consequence of the fact that they think that Ukraine is a dangerous uh, cat spa to be used by the West against them, and they need to eliminate it. It's not exactly clear. I suspect that there's probably people with varying motivations uh, uh, as to that, but I think that's ultimately where they're at now which is, gets to the point that you raised, which is when you obliterate a city and you start trying to re-educate uh, the citizens and you're shipping a bunch of people out of that territory back into Russia, what does that mean? Well, that's, that is ethnic cleansing in a lot of ways. And uh, I think that they want Ukraine to now, if, if Ukraine won't be in their sphere of influence, and they don't want Ukraine to be very strong. And uh, it's almost like a Carthaginian peace, if you will, It's not quite salting the earth as the Romans did to Carthage, but they did that, of course, so that Carthage could never grow plants again or anything else, and Carthage could never rise again. And uh, you're seeing something somewhat analogous to that, I think. And, you know, I I, I think that's, again, this is why we are in such a tragic situation, is because it's hard to unwind that, and it's going to be hard to see how Ukraine recovers from this without, obviously, vast amounts of support from other countries. And I don't know how that's going to occur. I mean, the assumption that we're going to kick the Russians out of all that territory, I think, is questionable. I mean, we, if you sold them enough weapons and stuff like that, maybe, but then that runs the risk of escalation. And when do you, where do you, where's the red line? And this is obviously why we've been very limited in some ways. I mean, we're, I mean limit, we are giving them a lot of weapons, and we have given them intelligence, and we are doing a lot. And we're actually, in some ways, escalating in recent weeks, even in terms of how many uh, medium range missile systems we're giving them. There's discussions about, you know, helping to backfill planes and other NATO members so that NATO members can sell weapons and planes and things like that to Ukraine. And I, I think we may start doing more of that to try to to keep the playing field balanced for them and, and maybe tilt it back. But it's hard to see how they're going to just kick them all out. Certainly out of Crimea I don't see happening. Does,
0: does, does America have a responsibility to participate in this, do you feel? Is that fair to ask? Is it, is it strategically important to us on one level, and is it morally important to us on another level?
1: Well, I think this is one of these classic cases where morality and strategy may not necessarily coincide. From a moral standpoint, I think it's indisputable that, yeah. You you have to do something. I mean, there's you, you can't look at the pictures, you can't look at the massacres and things like that. Now, you know, I will also say you got to be a little careful because in these kind of conflicts, both sides tend to lie, uh, and still propaganda and use propaganda. Yeah. So it is in Ukraine's interest to say that Russia is doing everything they possibly can to be monsters and the greatest, you know, that they're doing terrible things because that incentivizes the West to want to continue to help them. Where Russia, of course, wants to say they don't do anything like that. So that tries to ameliorate or mitigate what they've done so that the West doesn't have that same incentive. So. What's the truth? Uh, clearly, the Russians have committed what are our, our atrocities on a level. I think again that we haven't certainly haven't seen since at least the the the, the Yugoslavian breakup in the '90s, and probably I was going to say Hungary in the '50s. Yeah, th- this is probably even worse than 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 Bosnia was. Ultimately, I mean, yeah. you had some things happen during those conflicts that were pretty amazing, and they were the worst thing that had happened since World War II. But this is now, I think, eclipsing that, and and so this is definitely the worst since World War II. But it's hard to know what's true and what's not entirely true because, again, everybody kind of has an incentive to lie for their own reasons. And unless you're on the ground yourself, it, you know, you're only going to know what you can know.
0: I, I think that they're, you know, they're taking of of Moldova is a given. Where, where does it end with these guys? Does it stop or was, is Ukraine
1: enough? I. I, I I think it would have been enough. Whether it's going to be enough now, I think, is is a question mark. I I, I have a hard time seeing that Russia is going to go and try to go into Poland or something like that. I mean, Poland is – I I, I don't – they're having a pretty hard time in Ukraine. I would be – I am surprised that they went in as big as they did into Ukraine. um, uh, But I'm not entirely surprised that they went into Ukraine in some fashion. I would be vastly surprised if they went into Poland. Uh, I don't think that's a very likely scenario. I mean, you never know. Putin could be getting out of control. He could be being egged on by more radical elements. But I think that they are so stretched already. And Poland is a much different animal, too, uh, even than Ukraine. And I think that would be difficult. I also don't think that they're likely to go into Finland and do all that kind of stuff. I. I do not think that that is a very likely scenario. I think Ukraine has a very unique position in, Rust- in the Russian imagination, or at least the ruling elites and Putin's historical understanding of Russian history, it, because they're tracing it back to Kiev and the foundation even of the Russian people. That is, that is their sort of foundation myth, if you yes. will. It goes all the way back there. So having that torn away from them and becoming Western, I think, is a humiliation, a, 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 as well as a, a potential threat from their perspective. So I think it's all of those things. So it's, uh, I don't think that applies to Poland. I don't think that applies to Finland either. So I just, I, I, I don't, now, would they take all of Ukraine if they could? Maybe. Or they might leave some rump elements of Ukraine that were historically not Russian. Because you got to remember, part of Ukraine used to be uh, obviously, there's a lot that was part of Russia, but it also was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Austrian Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the Habsburg Territory. There's parts of it that were part of Poland at one point in time. So you've got a lot of Catholic elements, especially in the western side. The further west you go, is far more Catholic than Eastern Orthodox. So uh, do they want to digest all of that? Uh, I don't really believe that that's where they want to go. Um, that would be
0: astounding if they were to actually stop at the 1918 border.
1: Yeah. I
0: mean, you know, that that World War I uh, border where, wow, I mean, I, I didn't even really think about that that deeply till just now. I and,
1: I, I don't I, that's why I think uh, I mean I think Ukraine is is again in a very difficult situation, a very difficult geography. There's the vast crisscrossing currents of historical understanding that go back and forth there. But it's difficult for me to envision that Russia has the A, the capacity, or B, really truly the will to go and do all of that. Now, they have set themselves up, though, with some of the rhetoric that's being used, that they're now at war with NATO, that they're now at war with the, essentially, the Western powers. And you could envision a scenario where they go farther because they feel like, in order to secure the gains that they've made, they have to keep going. And some of that may have to do with how involved we get uh, and what other weapons do we do. What other things does NATO members allow to happen if they think that that is the only way that they can protect themselves? But I think what's more likely is that they will probably try to secure Donbass, try to secure Crimea, probably annex that territory to Russia, and then try to draw a line and then sort of weaken and probably occasionally pound Kiev or some other cities in the West to say, don't, uh, don't screw with us, and we can do that. Meanwhile, uh, another factor is they're going to probably tighten their grip again in Belarus, which is obviously the north there. They're already very tight with the leader in Belarus who kind of owes his continued power uh, to Russian backing and uh, they're giving missiles, uh, larger missiles now, with longer ranges uh, to Belarus, including (laughs) nuclear-capable missiles. So it would not surprise me to see them give nuclear missiles to Belarus as a counter uh, as well. So I think that that is a more likely scenario than that they try to march into Poland or something like that.
0: Economic implications for people in the United States. I, I know that Europe is going to be in all kinds of trouble. When Nord Stream went down for... It's 10-day repair cycle. I didn't expect it to come back up. I really thought they would show that for another five or six days and, and make Europe suffer. You know, oh, it's not full capacity. Well, yeah, and, and, and they control the meter on how much goes through. But uh, you know, Ukraine, we, have, uh, we see Russia now having an agreement with Ukraine, which is interesting during a, a wartime, so to speak, to ship grain out. What does this mean, do you think, for the people of the United States, and how bad is it going to be for the Europeans next year?
1: Uh, Very bad maybe this year for the Europeans. I mean, I think Germany, I mean, you're hearing the EU countries talking about rationing of of resources and turn your power off or your heat off and things like that. So it's going to be a very—if the winter is a bad winter, it's going to be a really, really, really bad time for the Europeans. If it's a more mild winter, then God is, uh, I think, smiling on the Europeans at that point. Uh, but I think it's going to be a real problem for them. You know, the fact that they're restricting the wheat that's going out of Ukraine by kind of blockading the Black Sea area, that's a, that's, that is a problem. It, it has, a, obviously, a negative impact, and it is a contributor to inflation. I think we need to be very, very careful. Inflation in the United States is uh, largely our own doing through uh, bad economic policies that we in the United States have done uh, and overspending and shutting everything down from COVID and breaking our supply chains and everything else. However, this does have a contributing factor. It is not the decisive factor, but it is definitely another layer of problems to expedite or exacerbate those, those issues. So I think that that happens. And I will say, too, some of the nitrogen and some of the fertilizers, uh, Russia is a major provider of that. So when you talk to some of the farm guys, uh, you know that, that is causing them to have to spend a lot more money on a lot of the nitrogen-based fertilizers that they have to use. So it, it is going to have a, a negative impact. I don't think it's the core cause of our problems, but it is going to make it worse. So it is bad for us. But where it's really bad, and this is where things get really fascinating, and, and is, is that it's really, really bad for developing countries. You're talking about Africa and some of the Middle Eastern countries. And you're already seeing uh, food riots and things like that in various places. That is an indirect result of what's happening with food prices going up. We, the Arab Spring that happened uh, a decade ago was because of high food prices. Well, lo and behold, we're back to a situation where we're having high food prices, and this is creating all kinds of instability and is actually useful to Putin. Because if you can have, say, refugees fleeing the Middle East or North Africa and flooding into Europe at a time where Europe is kind of destabilized, has weak leadership in most of the major countries, I mean, obviously England is going through a parliamentary era, trying to figure out who their next prime minister is going to be. You're in the post-Merkel situation in Germany. The new guy, Schultz, is not necessarily earned his stripes yet and has had some issues. Uh, Macron is weak. He he won re-election, uh, but he, lo- he allowed Le Pen, uh, the nationalist, to get more votes than she'd ever gotten before. And lo and behold, he lost his uh, parliamentary majority after he won. So you've got a lot of weak players in a lot of the traditional, at least Western European countries. And you don't even have unity uh, amongst all countries because Hungary is not really with the Western program.
0: Yeah, I mean, Viktor Orban is uh, down at CPAC right now yeah. in Texas. And he has reinvented
1: Hungary as a isolationist state yes. in many respects. So. And, a, and, and so what you're seeing is Europe has all kinds of problems. So imagine having a refugee crisis again, like they had, which created a lot. I mean, part of the reason you had a lot of the nationalism and what led to Brexit and a lot of things like that was you had a lot of these people. You had this flood of refugees coming into Europe in, a, a decade ago. Well, now you could have another flood to exacerbate all the inherent tensions that Europe is, and that's another weapon for Putin to use. So I don't know why you'd want, why he would want wheat to, to go out. I think he cut a deal because it sounds good. But, I mean, he's, he, they've hit ships in the Black Sea, por- in the ports. They've hit ports. Yeah. And, oh, is that an accident? Well, I mean, you can always say it's an accident, but it seems to me that it's more likely that you're going to weaponize food. And this is why I think America and the West in general also has to be really careful. While I was surprised by the rapidity with which Western countries sort of unified on the mass sanctions on Russia, which is unprecedented in modern history, the level of sanctions that were imposed. And, you know, I'm, a, you know, now we've expanded, NATO. we just voted to expand NATO to, to Finland and Sweden. I mean, these are vast, incredible things. If, if you had said that at the, uh, a year ago, that all of that would have happened. I think it would have been shocking. People would have said, no, that's too crazy. That, that's too much of a change in a short period of time. But it's all happened now. So I think that, that what you're seeing is a lot of Western unity, more than I would have anticipated initially, although I think there's still a lot of fracture points and, fat, and, and things that can be exploited, like I was talking about with the refugees. But what you aren't seeing is you're not seeing global support. You know, if you look at the world overall... Not a lot of people, China is, but not a lot Not a lot of people are necessarily backing Russia. But a lot of people are not backing the West either. If you look at India, they're not backing the West. They're buying cheap oil because they need to. And by the way, India has a longstanding relationship with Russia and gets a lot of weapons from Russia. So they're not backing the West against Russia. Now, they're not, again, they're not endorsing what Russia has done. Uh, they want negotiations and things like that, but they're certainly not getting all in on our side. Brazil, now that could change. Obviously, their leader Bolsonaro could lose an election, and and you might see some changes there. But right now, Brazil, uh, the largest country and and the most powerful economy in in South America, they aren't backing the Western world. And you see a lot of uh, South Africa and countries in Africa, they're not really backing uh, the Western world either. In fact, all the countries in the world that actually still have uh, really high demographic growth, something the West does not have anymore, either here, at least domestically, America. I mean, we, we get most of our population growth from immigration now. Uh, in Europe, their population growth, to the extent they have it, is because they're importing refugees and, and immigrants from other Middle East and, and, and Northern Africa. Uh, uh, so all the populations that, have growing po- uh, that are growing or the countries with growing populations, they're pretty much all neutral and saying, stop the war. They're not saying punish Russia. They're saying stop the war. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing the Western world is sort of so focused on we're going to defend democracy, we're going to beat the authoritarianism, we're going to beat this horrible aggressive imperialist in Putin or Hitler 2.0. But good chunks of the world aren't there. And China and Russia are using their diplomacy to try to cleave off a lot of these countries in order to make sure that they don't stay aligned with the West. And I think these are the things we have to watch in the long run is this is not as easy as the old Cold War was. This is not a bipolar confrontation where it's all Western democracies versus, you know, Eastern autocracies. This is a very complicated thing where different countries are looking out for their own national interests. They may, again, they don't endorse. They're not necessarily endorsing Russia, but they, they, you know, I mean, to them, if you're in a country where you're going to have starve and have political dislocation, do you really care what's happening to Ukraine? Or do you just not want to have political dislocation in yeah. your country?
0: J- Japan and Australia are both nervous about what China is up to, and you know, Japan is increasing their military force to levels that could make people nervous. I mean, the Japanese system is, is very, very different. You know, they, don't, they don't allow immigrants to come into their country because they are Japanese. You know, they, the, everyone in America always thinks that people are like Americans. The rest of the world is not like Americans. They operate in ways that they've operated for maybe 5,000 years. And when we try to take everything in our own viewpoint, you know, that's the important thing is to understand. That's why you're here with us is to help us see the greater global viewpoint and understand how the world operates so so China China we're going to move over to China a little bit so we can touch on it China's been locking down cities due to COVID because the report is their vaccine program has less than a one percent efficacy. I don't know that the American vaccine program had much more than a four percent efficacy ourselves but they are completely locking people in their homes they've got supposed riots in the cities things that we'll never know about but what, what does that mean? Where is China headed in all of this? Because they have billions of people that they have to keep operating, keep working. They don't have the natural resources available. They are dependent on the world to a large degree to sending things in there so they can maintain themselves working, they can eat, and they can have fuel to do, the, to do those things. Where's China in this?
1: Well, I think this is where you're seeing China do things like the Belt and Road Initiative. They're trying to invest, and this has been happening well before COVID and everything else. Yeah. They, they're, they're basically expanding their economic footprint. They're expanding it into Africa. They're one of the they're, they're much larger investments in Africa than, than the United States or Europeans have. Building railroads all over the interior of Africa. They're building sports stadiums. They're building stuff. They, they kind of have the thing of, you know, they kind of buy off their, the, the elites in different countries. They get the natural resources and they get to employ Chinese because they don't employ people in Africa. A- ask anybody who comes over here to the United States that, that is from Africa uh, and has immigrated in the last few years straight from somewhere over there and ask them how they feel about the Chinese and you'll probably hear most of them say they can't stand the Chinese. Why? Because they take they, they bribe our leaders, they take our resources and when they come over to build stuff, they don't even hire uh, people who live in that country. They bring in Chinese, which is actually what the Chinese want to do. They want to be able to ha- use their labor in that way. Yes, And they're also... Collecting did political it in the chits. They built the Bahamas. They built
0: that giant hotel down there that never got finished. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So they, they, they build political chits. They do this. They also are building out, and this is one of the most uh, problematic things, through the use of Huawei and the use of 5G and building out broadband infrastructure in a lot of these countries that need development. They're doing it. But when they do it, they're getting access to all that data. They're becoming the vast, they are becoming a global brain they of data collector. They know better collection. than
0: you know yourself.
1: And so as the world is saying, you know, they need development. So as these populations, especially, again, as I mentioned, those countries that have growing populations want that need that development, China is offering it to them. So they're gaining a lot. And historically, they do need to import a lot because, as you mentioned, they have some weaknesses. But as they build pipelines, as they build trading places, as they develop, continue the relationship with Russia, they're developing relations with Iran, which is a whole other set of issues with Iran and the nuclear program. But who's building pipelines out of Iran into China? China is, is paying for that and helping Iran to do that. They're developing the ability to get overland natural resources so that the U.S. Navy can't pinch them off with some kind of a naval blockade. They're also developing, a na- because of their, pro, their decent relationship with Russia now, they're not spending as much money on their army. They can spend money on their navy to be able to push out. And there's only one country or two countries, if you think about Japan. But really, it's basically aimed at us. Yeah. And they've been spending the last 20 to 30 years building out their navy and, and different capacities. To push us out. And so they're developing all these political economic relationships throughout the Eurasian landmass. And at the same time, trying to push us out of Asia, which is what Taiwan, why Taiwan is such a critical thing for us. Well, one of several reasons. It's that and semiconductors, because Taiwan uh, is one of the largest fabs, the largest fab in the world for fabricating uh, microchips.
0: Which has been good in one sense for Central Ohio, because we're picking up the giant Intel factory
1: here. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you say that because it's it's fascinating, but let's be real clear. I think it's great that it's here. I think it's a wonderful thing for the Ohio. It would not happen without the threat of China. China is, yeah, China is the reason that Intel is doing this. We, we should have done it a long time ago. Exactly. I mean... I agree. Uh, but China, so I think China is being very intelligent about what they're doing and uh, the relationships that they're developing with other countries. And the, the challenge is going to be that their economy is so big, even though they have some problems. And I think uh, you'll hear a lot of people talk about their real estate market is declining. As you mentioned, they've yeah. been shutting things down because of COVID with a zero tolerance policy, which is shaving uh, a lot of their GDP growth. I mean, you know, maybe even close to them having a recession as, re- as a result of that. Now, there's also some speculation that some of what they are doing is trying to maintain some political control into the run-up for the, uh, I forget which number of Congress it is, but basically this year, uh, in the next couple of months, I think in October, Xi Jinping is going to probably seek a third term as, as essentially the, the, the supreme leader. And this will be the first time since Mao that somebody has done that. So she is arguably the strongest leader since Mao Zedong in China. And so there's some talk that he's trying to control some of the various elements and problems and factions and things like that uh, as well uh, in, in China as he is in the run-up to their own domestic political situation. Whether or not that plays a role, I, I can't imagine they're shutting down whole cities because of that. But then again, uh, they do think differently yeah. <laughs> than we do. Oh, and
0: We have to always remember that, that. It's not about transfer of power every eight years or yeah. four years. You know. You, if you're doing a good job or you've got your finger on everybody else, you get to stay as long as you get to stay.
1: And she is a very tough customer, you know, and I think that, uh, I think China is definitely going to go through a difficult p- situation. Uh, I think their economy is having some challenges right now. But you hear there's been a, there's been a drumbeat of people for 30 years saying, you know, the Chinese miracle is going to end this year. This is the year. They have too much bad investment. They build ghost cities. They do this. They do that. Blah, blah, blah. You know, there's nothing that's happening in China today that is as bad as the Taiping Rebellion in the eighteen like fifties and sixties that killed twenty million people. Mm-hmm. Just not. There's nothing as bad as what happened in the in the uh, revol- the civil war between uh, the communist and Chiang Kai Shek. There's nothing as bad as when the Japanese invaded and attacked and did things like the rape of Nanking. They did all of that, and yet China is still here, the second largest economy in the world, about eighty percent of our GDP right now straight up, and if you look at purchase power parity, which is uh, equalized for uh, the ability of how you can stretch your funds in different countries, they actually are larger than our economy right now. They did all that despite the fact that a generation ago, the largest man-made famine in human history killed like 30 million Chinese. But here they are, the second largest economy in the world. Now, you could say that we help facilitate that, and I think that's a separate conversation and partly true. Yeah. But at the end of the day, some bad investment in real estate and some people having, losing some jobs and losing some money and probably commit, you know, whatever, is that really going to be the thing that destroys China over time? I, I, I'm not so sure about that. I think that is some wishful thinking by American leaders who don't realize we're in the, the fight, the geopolitical and geoeconomic fight of our existence. We have never faced a geopolitical and economic competitor with the kind of economic heft that China has since we rose to be a great power, maybe post-Civil War, probably most people would say America became a global power in the Spanish-American War.
0: China has a negative population growth that's been occurring for a long time because of the one-child policy. A lot of people are talking about, they, about the fact that they will not be able to adjust to that future, that that's actually going to be the demise. I'm not sure when you have multi-billion people that that's really gonna
1: take the rug out from under you. Uh, Any thoughts on that? Uh, I I agree with what you just said. I don't think it takes it out. I think it is a potential challenge, but I think this is why China's investing so much and frankly is stealing so much American technology and then trying to modify it and do things. And they've made tons of investments in artificial intelligence. They're making tons of investments in quantum computing and and automation uh, on on a level that is even exceeds our own. What I think they're doing is they recognize that that is a problem. And I think that their goal is to automate and use technology to be able to still maintain a high level of productivity, even if they have a declining population. And I think that their investments are pretty, pretty good, uh, and, and they're looking pretty impressive in terms of what they're accomplishing there. I think that if you saw America at its best in innovation, we would definitely still be beating China, because I don't think China is as inherently as innovative as the United States tends to be because there's cultural factors, historical factors, obviously there's political factors with them being a one-party dictatorship state and all of those things play a role in there.
0: But they're also are still you, pretty good. Are you suggesting, are, because there's a suggestion in that, that they are on top and we are not there anymore. Am I hearing that as a possibility? That oh, we are, well, I'll
1: tell you this. I, mean, I think it's, I think, I, if I was, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my honest opinion.
0: You got $10, two, to, be, you got $10 two, to invest, and it's all $1 bills. How many go to America? How many go to China? And you're only doing it to invest money.
1: Seven to China, three to us. Uh, and the reason why is that I do not think China would, is able to ultimately do better than America at its best. But I tell people all the time, China doesn't have to beat America at its best. They only have to beat America where we are. And I think that the problem we're seeing in America is right. that we are snuffing our own innovative culture out. All of And obviously, this is a topic for another conversation, but it all interrelates. Oh,
0: we're going to have another one. When we, when we
1: talk about all the woke stuff and all the problems that we have domestically and the inflation and the poor economic policies, and, and again, the cultural issues and the domestic self-Balkanization, as I call it, when we have all of those things happening at the same time, they couldn't happen at a better time. Yeah. We are, by, in many ways, by our own choice, waning while they are waxing. And do I think that they should—I think that, again, if we were doing more like what we did in the 80s with Reagan, uh, or you know, even what we did during World War II with the leadership that we have had in the past, do I think that we would be in this position? No, I don't think so. But I think that we've squandered a lot of opportunities. We're behind the eight ball. They've made strategic investments that are wise. And we are, not, we are running the risk of taking the things that are inherent American advantages and sort of throwing them away. We had an incredible capital that we had earned uh, throughout the post-World War II and certainly the post-Cold War, the first you know, decade or so of the post-Cold War era. And had a margin of error that was larger than probably any country has ever had in the history of mankind, and we are that margin of error is shrinking because we're consuming uh, the benefits that we had accrued through past generations and past investments and past innovations. And in order to maintain that, we have to continue to make those kind of investments and innovations. And we still we still do. I don't want to say that we we're not doing any of that because we are, and there's still opportunities, and there's a wide range of policies that we can do that can. Get us back on track to be as good as we have been in the past, but it requires a will and a political will to do that. Beating do, China, do
0: we have that will?
1: I, I I don't think the party in power today does. No, and I and I fear that that we may not, because there's going to be decisions that have to be made that are going to gore a lot of special interests, uh, oxes, and things like that. You know, the the challenge of this is too, China is pretty shrewd. They have co-opted a lot of our political, business, and cultural elite. You can make a lot of money by kowtowing to Beijing. The people that sh- that were on our side to kick the Soviet Union's butt during the Cold War are actually not necessarily on our side anymore. I mean, you used to have people make pro-American, you know, beat the Soviet Union movies and culture. And I was going to say all you of hear this Hollywood. So what do we do now? We now. I, if I remember correctly, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true. I hope I'm not wrong when I say this, but they, they, that whole silly Red Dawn remake yeah. that they did a few years ago where it was North Korea invading us, by the way. Yes. Well, it wasn't initially North Korea. It was supposed to be China, but they wanted to sell the movie in China. So I think they went in post-production and modified the flags to be North Korean because they didn't want to tick off the Chinese.
0: Mulan with Disney. I mean, well, yeah, Disney, they, you know, they they
1: shot that in Shenyang, the area where they are doing all these mass uh, camps for the Uyghurs uh, population there. Exactly. And they actually have in the in the credits they actually thank some of the government officials in Xinjiang. Disney did that. Uh, so and the NBA, you know, you had that guy for the Houston Rockets who basically got shut down because he criticized uh, China over, I think, Hong Kong at the time, and uh, he got shut down by the NBA. And LeBron James attacked him for it. So they're embedded, so embedded. And, of course, they put Confucius Institutes in our institutions of higher learning. There's just so much that they've done. And the problem that we have is when we were fighting the Soviets, basically the elites, the the policy elites and the political elites were generally on the same page. I mean, there was some communist infiltration and there were some issues. There was Alger Hiss. There were some bad things that happened, right? Sure. Uh, But in general, we were on the same page. America was rowing in the same boat. And our win, a win for uh, Joe Sixpack, was also a win for the guy in the corporate boardroom. Well, now a win for Joe Sixpack, maybe a loss for the guy in the corporate boardroom. And that is a very different situation. It's also why I think you see so much of our, uh, obviously, again, Russia's invaded Ukraine. China's not yet invaded Taiwan. But a lot of the kind of the cultural and political elite it, it, want to vilify the Russians and kind of poo-poo some of the stuff that China does. You know, I mean, if you really think about it, China is responsible for more dead Americans than probably any other country I can think of in the last hundred years. And when I say that, I mean, think about COVID. Yeah. Now, whether it was the, whether it was the, let, let's even stipulate that it was not the lab leak. Yeah. Let's say it was the wet market. They lied about it. They manipulated the WHO. They allowed things to spread and they've never allowed anybody to get to the bottom of it. So they it did allow that to happen. In a large measure, or at least, to, uh, to, they were, I don't think they intentionally they let it happen compli- to
0: They were complicit in the cover-up. Correct. Which is as bad as the crime in most situations.
1: Fentanyl. The number of people who are dying from fentanyl, and you hear this all the time. Well, fentanyl, a lot of that is produced in China. And then gets cut in, the cartels do it in Mexico, and comes up through Mexico, and, and it originates in, And I want
0: to put this out there. And India. It is It is actually shifting some A tremendous amount somehow. of that comes out of India and China, both countries, very, very high technology. They've got great capability to make this stuff. And they ship it over here and they kill our people.
1: Well, if China can shut down entire populations and shut down entire cities and do and, and monitor people the way they are, I mean, they've, they've literally made like 1984, George Elwell, Orwell, they've made it come real in terms of their surveillance state technology. You're telling me they couldn't shut down the fentanyl if they wanted to? And so I think China in particular, India may not be able to, but China certainly I think, has the capability. Now, are they doing it as a matter of policy intentionally? Uh, my sense is they're probably just looking the other way, but it's advantageous to them. And so if you look at COVID, you look at fentanyl, that is a vast number of, of Americans that are dead as a result of policy that, that, that China's done.
0: Not just dead, but the societal cost. Of oh, China yes. Trying to keep people dealing with that. The number, of our, the number of people who would be productive in our labor of our society yeah. that are unproductive, and we have to carry them along. I mean, as a, as a business owner, the number of people that we have come in and cannot stay working with us for a couple of weeks when we're you know, out on our job sites, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. People would not believe it. And it's, it's a horrible question. And it's where we're at.
1: And I think that Americans really need to look at that and realize China is the challenge. I mean, Russia is, has acted in a very bad way in Ukraine and is a real problem. But what Russia is in the grand scheme, if you look at the global overall global chessboard in a sense, Russia is the major spoiler power of the 21st century. Yeah. They are the spoiler because they can pivot to us, they could, which I don't think they're going to do now, uh, <laughs> but they could have, or they could pivot to China, or probably what they would do is try to pivot between both of us so they can get what they want. That would have been better than what we actually have now. What's happening now is Russia is sucking up so much of our attention, a lot of our resources, And we're not deploying those into Asia. We're not deploying those into smart economic statescraft to deal with China because we're so worried about Ukraine. That is a distraction. It is a major problem. And what's ultimately going to happen is Russia is going to be the spoiler who tilts the global balance probably away from us towards China if we let it happen that way.
0: Is it fair to say Russia never entered the first world completely?
1: Oh, I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, certainly some... uh, the western side of Russia, with a vast majority of the population, is, is, I would say is. But when you look at the map and you look at Siberia, where a lot of the resources and stuff are, it's a much, uh, much different story.
0: Yeah, the, uh, because the mentality of the Russians is we will persevere as Russians we always have. And many things are expendable if they need to be expended.
1: Including lives.
0: That's what I'm saying. That's really what I'm going at. And China, we know that about China. You know, the people exist only for the government, and the government exists for the purpose of trying to, you know,
1: take care of the people. It's, it's, it's not a, you know, they, they don't believe in the individual. Well, it's interesting because the Chinese Communist Party, what's really fascinating if you look back at Mao, communism is almost secondary to nationalism. In a sense, Mao used the communism as a methodology of acquiring power and trying to outdo the West. They, the, the Chinese hated the, the West. I mean, the British did hook the Chinese on opium themselves, which is why it's so oh, ironic and that Fenton. America and Germany here. were sitting there at the same we time. We op- forcibly open up their ports and we gun do all this dis- stuff gun in gunboat diplomacy. And, and look, let's just be honest. They were exploited and used and, and, in, and in all sense and purposes, they were mistreated. And that is the chip. So I mentioned earlier there's a chip on the shoulder that Russia and, and China both have. The Russians feel like that we've humiliated them. So do the Chinese. They ca- talk constantly about a thing called the century of humiliation, which goes back to the opium wars, goes back to what the Europeans did. Then the Japanese did it to them because they don't like the Japanese either because of obviously that. But this is a deep thing. So when she talks about this and when the Chinese communist leadership talks about it, there is a very strong sense of nationalism. And in fact, that's why they're doing a lot of stuff they're doing with the Uyghur population is they're essentially trying to, They are committing cultural genocide because they actually want to turn that population into something much more like the ethnic majority in China, which is the Han ethnic majority.
0: Oh, it's it's total ethnic cleansing. Yeah, the Han Han rule. The Han will continue to rule. They think they're better. A thousand percent think they're better. They are the superior Chinese,
1: without a doubt, in their own minds. And, and I think that, the, and, and because they have that chip on their shoulder that they were kind of betrayed and mistreated when they were weak by all these other exploitative powers, they want to stand on their own two feet now in a way that, you know, first it was to get unified, that's what Mao did. Then it was to build up their power, which is what the, one of the successors of Mao, Deng Xiaoping, talked about. And now it's their chance to become the global power themselves. And I think that as the Middle Kingdom, which is kind of what they're known as, right, and the Middle Kingdom implies that they're in the middle. And, that, and, and so you think about the Belt and Road Initiative. when You think about the economic ties I was talking about earlier into Africa, into the Central Asian states that used to be part of the Soviet Union, into uh, Southeastern Asia. When you look at all of what they're doing, and in Russia for that matter, uh, when you look at all of those things, they want to be the central cog of the economy. And the data flows that they can do as they build out the data networks in all these countries that need development. And by the way, they're doing it even in our own backyard. Huawei is building out a ton of infrastructure, a telecom infrastructure, in Mexico and in South America and in Brazil and in uh, all of that. So you're watching that, and what they're doing is building the infrastructure of places, and we aren't doing that. And so the the world that we built after World War II on the ashes of of the suicide of Europe, uh, or the near suicide of Europe, I should say, and kind of the near suicide of a lot of Asia. We were the last person standing and we didn't get hurt that bad, relatively speaking. Well, that world order is gone. It is, it is. We have to deal with the fact that we still have great benefits in America. Smart leadership. we have, we're an incredibly blessed country from agriculture. We can move goods around. We have more access to the oceans than any other single country in the world. We have more natural assets and we have that can-do, entrepreneurial, innovative spirit is is there. That's what makes America great. That is enough it's to make for us now.
0: there. It's there for now, but I'll tell you what. we have, With COVID and wokeism, we've really, really put our thumb down on
1: it. And if we don't stop putting that thumb down, like I said, China doesn't have to be in America at its best. It only has to be in America where we are. And we have a choice to make about how we're going to deal with these issues. And I think there's people out there that are starting to talk about it. I wish we'd hear more about it. Um, You know, I think uh, I'll be candid. I think J.D. Vance talks some about this stuff, and you hear some of those kind of things. And I think you'll hear—hopefully we'll start to hear more and more of that from other people and other running for office because we have to understand the historical moment that we're in. And we're in a very—we're in a pivot moment where just because we've been the top, you know, power and the top dog for so many years— there's nothing inevitable about that. Rome was too, and it's part of the world, and then it wasn't.
0: Yeah. The first step to, defi- to solving a problem is defining a problem. I think we're still defining the problem.
1: No, I think we are. I think, uh, I think the twin problems that America faces today is the rise of China uh, combined with our d- domestic wokeism and self-balkanization. They, are, they feed off of each other. China, will, China is the ultimate beneficiary of our own domestic uh, errors. Every
0: percent we lose, they gain directly. That's where we're at. So, well, hey, we probably need to jump off with this. We could go on all night. I know, Greg, and we're going to have to get you back here on a regular rotation, it sounds like, because making people smart who listen to these programs is what this is all about. So, everyone, Greg Lawson is our guest. Greg is obviously tremendously informative. We thank him very much for his time, and we'll keep feeding you good information. Thanks. Hey, thanks for giving us your time to listen. You've been listening to Fill in the Blank with Sean Parker, where we talk about the issues of politics and the geopolitical marketplace, as well as economics. If you like our channel, please subscribe to us at Fill in the Blank on YouTube. And be sure to listen every week as we come back to you with some of the most thought-provoking people of the day. And learning is always the key to what we're trying to do.